Friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word as we continue our series on the life and ministry of Jesus that will culminate with his death and resurrection on Easter weekend. It has been a delight to spend these last few weeks in the life of the Lord Jesus, and we look forward to learning more this morning from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 27. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God, words that were written for you. And for me. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And he said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he will repay each person according to what he has done. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Well, friends, I don't know about you, but the Rocky movies are still extremely popular in the Ray House, and whenever they come on TV from time to time, we will gladly tune in. Well, one of my favorite scenes ever in all of cinematic history occurs in Rocky II, my personal favorite among the Rocky series. Here's the setup. Having recently lost an enormous fight against Apollo Creed, doing far better than anyone ever expected, Rocky, Rocky actually accepts a second fight. But things are very different now. Rocky gets married and his wife Adrian is pregnant with their first child. Things are going well. Life is very good. For the Balboa family. But Rocky, you see, he's a little detached. 
He's not motivated this time around, and he's kind of going through the motions as it relates to his training. Mickey, his trainer, gets very impatient with Rocky, telling him that he's lost heart. But see, everybody, we know what's wrong. It's his wife, Adrian, and her lack of support for this fight. She's extremely worried that Rocky's going to get hurt or perhaps even worse. The emotional strain of it all causes her to collapse, and she's rushed to the hospital. She delivers their baby a month premature and in the process loses a lot of blood. She slips into a coma. It changes everything. Rocky won't eat. He won't sleep. He won't train. He won't leave her side until the day that thankfully she finally wakes up. She survived. And with Rocky's trainer, Mickey, in the room, Adrian and Rocky, they finally meet their baby boy and thrilled with her survival, Rocky tells her he's not going to fight. He's going to ease her fears. When in response, she calls him over and asks him to lean in close and she says, there's just one thing I want you to do for me. One thing. And curiously, he says, what's that? And she says, when, when, and when she says that second when, you hear the Liberty Bell in the background ringing, okay? And from that point on, Rocky goes crazy in terms of training, okay? It's the turning point in the movie, very similar to the way I train before my tennis matches. He's doing one-armed push-ups. He's in like a metal salvage yard, like taking a hammer, hitting metal, not sure what that's doing, okay? He's chasing greased chickens, okay? He's running, you know, he's doing all kinds of things. It's amazing, and for every red-blooded American man, like, you are with him every step of the way, training, wanting to fight and take down Apollo Creed. It is the turning point in Rocky II from everything, and everything from that point on, leads up to this second rematch with Apollo Creed. But believe it or not, friends, that is the role. That is the role that the confession of Peter plays in the Gospel of Matthew. Literarily, it is the turning point of the Gospel. And after Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, everything, everything is now pointing toward Jesus's uh, last week in Jerusalem. After this confession, Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. So today what we're going to look at as we prepare for Easter Sunday, it's an appropriate time to look at the turning point of Jesus's ministry and this defining conversation that he has with his disciples. After this point, opposition to Jesus's ministry is about to greatly intensify. And the disciples needed to acknowledge and own who it was they were following and the cost of what it would mean to follow him all the way to the end. So with that in mind, let's look at this turning point. Let's look at this text. Let's look at verses 13 through 15. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea, 
Philippi, the Galilean ministry of Jesus that we've looked at for the past few weeks, is over now. He is in northern Israel, just south of Mount Hermon. He asked his disciples, so he's kind of having, um, for lack of a better word, a little retreat with just his disciples. He asked them, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? If you will remember, that term, Son of Man, that's Jesus' favorite self-designation. It's a loaded term. You know, it, 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 um, it implies and conveys that he really is a man, flesh and blood like you and me. But the Son of Man from Daniel was this divine, exalted figure. And so it had two layers of meaning for Jesus to associate this term, the Son of Man, with himself. Look at verse 14. And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, if you're wondering why Christ wasn't on the list, you know, they listed John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, why weren't some speculating that Jesus might be the Christ? Well, we don't know exactly, but it probably relates to what we looked at last week when Jesus healed the man born blind. If you remember back when the Pharisaical Gestapo started interrogating the man's parents and asking him all these questions, they were very frightened and afraid, and all they would do is say, I can only confirm for you that our son was born blind. And if you remember, in John's Gospel, John makes an editorial comment and tells the reader why it was the man's parents were afraid. Because at that point, the Pharisees had already started excommunicating people who viewed Jesus to be the Christ. And so persecution had already happened, and so people were probably very wary of saying that Jesus was the Christ publicly. Okay, so they speculated maybe John the Baptist, maybe Elijah, maybe Jeremiah. But verse 15, Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? In other words, are you also afraid to say it? You know, he's saying to his disciples, My beloved friends, what is it that you believe about me? Verse 16, the turning point in the gospel you might even say the turning point of the whole Bible. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Did you hear it? That's the Liberty Bell now playing in the background, okay? This is the turning point. Everything about Jesus' life and ministry, the entirety of the Bible has been leading up to this moment. And it's not just the central question of the book, who do you say that I am? It is the central question of life. Jesus would ask all of us today to answer this question. Who do you say that I am? What is your view of me? What have you done with who I claim to be? You know, it's very easy to get distracted with what other people think about Jesus, or questions related to the difficulty and suffering of our world. It's very easy to get distracted by those things. And those are very important questions, 
but they are secondary. The primary question, the most important question a person can answer in life is who do you think Jesus of Nazareth was and what have you done with him? All those other questions, albeit very important, can be sorted out in time. This is the primary question. One of my favorite quotes in um, all of C.S. Lewis's writings come in his book called Mere Christianity, where he tries to kind of uh, encapsulate this. And you might be familiar with this quote, but C.S. Lewis writes, I am here to try to prevent someone from doing the very foolish thing of accepting Jesus as a great moral teacher, but not as God. That is the one thing we must not say or do. And I just, I I love C.S. Lewis's like penetrating insight here, how rational and how logical he is. I can remember struggling with this in college. He writes, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says or thinks that he is a poached egg, or else he would be a liar and the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or he was a madman. You, can't, you can write him off as a fool, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that open to us. He did not intend to. He ends this little thought with this. Lewis writes, to me, it seems obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God Almighty. That is an extremely thoughtful observation by C.S. Lewis. Matthew 16, 16 is the turning point of the story, for it is here that Peter confesses publicly and that the disciples own as a group that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. An incredible breakthrough. Verse 17, Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, no one can come to this conclusion on their own. This is insight given to Peter and the disciples by the grace of the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now we could spend all day unpacking those two verses, but I'd like to briefly, most briefly, summarize their meaning for us. The rock on which the church would be built was the statement that Peter made. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
It is that statement that forms the foundation of the church. That statement is the bedrock of the church. Everything is built on that truth. Everything is based on Jesus and his gospel. That would be the message that the people of God would take into all of the world for years and years to come. And Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. An interesting phrase. That was actually a Jewish idiom. The text literally reads, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The gates of Hades was a Hebrew or Jewish idiom for death or the place of the dead, okay? It was a metaphor for death. And Jesus saying that the gates of hell would not prevail against it was a way of saying that death would not be able to keep Jesus in his grip or in its grip and that death would not overtake the church. That he would not be kept under the power of death and the church will never die. That's what Jesus met, meant when he said the gates of hell or Hades would not prevail against it. And of course, there's never been another religion persecuted like Christianity was persecuted in its first 300 years. If you read early church history, it is, it is almost unfathomable that the early church survived despite the kind of persecution that endured. Jesus was saying that the church will never, ever die, which is an encouraging thing, obviously. Let's go to verses 21 through 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, for the disciples, and in Peter's defense... The idea that the Christ, the Son of the living God, the idea that he could be persecuted and suffer and die was absolutely inconceivable. Okay, like we've said before, what is your view of what's going to happen when Jesus comes again in power and glory? You know, what do you associate with the second coming of Jesus Christ? When Jesus comes again in power and glory, it is inconceivable to you and me that he could be defeated. I mean, that's an impossibility, right? I mean, it just, it's, it can't happen. It's not going to happen. Peter and the other disciples, okay, didn't have the perspective that we had. They didn't have the benefit of the fullness of new covenant knowledge. And so the ways that we view the second coming, that's what they were expecting when Messiah would come for the first time. So when Jesus discloses himself as the Christ, the son of the living God, they were expecting everything that we will expect when he comes again. So for Jesus to say to him that, this, that the Christ would suffer and die at the hands of the elders 
and the chief priests, like that did not compute. That was like a non sequitur. And that's why Peter responds the way that he does, like, no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Okay, he didn't understand that the Messiah had to die. I can't convey to you how inconceivable that would have been to Peter and the others. A suffering Savior, a humiliated Savior, that was, that was just not in their worldview. And so, in a sense, Peter rebukes Jesus, like, this can never happen. And then Jesus rebukes Peter, saying, no, 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 you don't understand. You're thinking like a man, okay? But you need to have a bigger perspective, Jesus says. Jesus compares Peter with Satan, and I know that feels strong, because Peter's statement was, in a sense, you know, if, if Peter was successful, it would have undermined Jesus' mission in the same way that Satan was trying to undermine the mission of Jesus in the wilderness, okay? So let's finish with this. Let's finish with what Jesus said that I would argue um, has prompted more soul-searching than any other statement made by any other person in history. Let's look at verses 24 through 27. These are some of the most challenging words that have ever been uttered. You talk about, you know, things that you think about, you know, as your head hits the pillow at night. These words have been pondered more than any other. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will actually lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. In other words, God is going to honor that last verse, which can be a little confusing and distracting. That last verse, verse 27, is really just saying God is going to, um, he's going to reward those who have been faithful to him and have counted the cost for him. But before that, when Jesus says um, that people must take up their cross and follow him, if you were sentenced to be crucified, you often had to carry your own cross to the site of your crucifixion. In our context, you know that phrase like digging your own grave, you're digging your own grave, that would be the modern day expression of that, actually digging the grave that you would soon be put into. And Jesus was using it as a metaphor for death to self or dying to self, to take up your own cross and follow him, okay, was a, was a way of saying that we're called, like I said a few weeks ago, to give up the life that we would have lived if Jesus would have never come or would have never existed. Taking up your cross and following him means dying to the life that you would have lived had you not believed that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and the Savior of sinners. In other words, when a person truly trusts in Jesus, 
the trajectory of their life changes. It doesn't mean that when you trust in Jesus, you're immediately called into vocational ministry to be a minister or a missionary. Obviously, some are. But to trust in Jesus greatly impacts how you live your life, how you conduct yourself at work, how you treat your wife or your husband, what you do with your time and your money. Everything is impacted when a person trusts in Jesus as the Messiah. And I've told you before, I will never forget where I was in college when the Holy Spirit was really pressing this truth on my heart. I can remember it was this time of year. It was spring break. Our tennis team was playing a match um, on the coast in South Carolina. And we were on our way down to Florida to play. And I was feeling very conflicted. I was struggling because um, I was reading my Bible like for the first time as an adult. I had grown up in the church. It was more of a kind of a nominal mainline church. But I, um, for a variety of reasons, had become convicted. You know, I had a sense that I wasn't right with God. That all my life in terms of Christianity, I had just been going through the motions and I just knew in my heart of hearts that if I died, I was not right with him. And the way that our matches would go, as soon as you finished your match, you would go set up shop, you know, on the bleachers and you would watch a teammate. And so I finished my match. I have no memory of the match whatsoever, but I remember going and sitting on metal bleachers, sitting with one of the guys on our team who, who wasn't playing but was there for support, his name was Deke Shepler. I'll never forget his name. And Deke was a Christian. He had been very involved in young life and was a gracious guy. And I can remember dialoguing with Deke, talking, about T, uh, talking with Deke about this and, and kind of opening up and telling him what was going on, that, that I was convicted, that I really believed in new ways that Jesus really was who he claimed to be. But I was so afraid of what it would mean for me if I trusted in him, you know, the kind of life change that would call me to make. Um, I was worried what my parents might think. I was worried what my older brother might think. I was worried what my teammates would think if I trusted in Jesus. Now, at that time, I, didn't, I wasn't even thinking about going into ministry. Honestly, if you would have known me then, you would have thought that is the last thing that David Ray would ever do. But I knew that trusting in Jesus would change everything. And I told that to Deke. And Deke quoted for me, from memory, Matthew 16, 26. And he said, David, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And I promise you, to say that cut me to the quick would be a massive understatement. And I, you know, Deke didn't understand the power of those words at the time. And I, I can remember after a few minutes, he kind of maybe drifted off to do something else and left me sitting on those bleachers. And it was like my whole life was before me. Because I knew, I knew that those words of Jesus were true. They were true then. And they were true today. And it, I did trust in the Lord Jesus. And it changed every facet of my life. 
And I praise God every day for what he did in my life. To think where I would be, apart from the saving grace of God, I shudder to think. And Jesus asks us all the same question that he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Beloved, what is your answer to that question? Pray with me. Our gracious God and Father, these are, these are intense words. Father, it is a sobering and serious question. It's the most important question that a person could ever consider. The question that the Lord Jesus asks us all this morning. Not what does everybody else think. But who do you say that I am? Father, I pray that you would do for all of us what you did for the Apostle Peter when you opened up his heart to know the Lord Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. What you did for Peter, Father, we pray that you would do for all of us. We pray this in his matchless name. Amen and amen.